Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. to see you. Hi, Denise. How was your week? It's been crazy, actually, with the weather changing. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was so cold when I went outside today. It's like, I'm not ready yet for this. I like the colder weather, so I'm kind of enjoying it, but all my winter and fall clothes are down in the basement, so I need to pull them out. But I got to wear my oh. yoga pants again, so that makes me happy. <laughs> Wait, you're wearing clothes? Don't you know it's time of COVID? I mean, be naked you know, everywhere. I, I have three children. Ah, uh, there is that. And, and they you don't have want school. To be, yeah, and you don't want to be known as the naked house either. So. Mm, no, and I don't want to be seen by the teachers naked behind their students, so my yeah. daughters. So that mm-hmm. would be a little embarrassing on my part. Yeah, so. just a smidge. I, I do wear pants, unfortunately, <laughs> during the day. So... It is what it is, and we're good to go. And for those just joining in, we are Murderous Roots, and we have a really interesting topic today. Oh, I before we get started, how's your week been? <laughs> I feel so bad. Oh. I forgot to ask you. No, it's everything's great. I just wish the sun would come back out and had a nice uh, lunch out with my mentee. I'm in this program where I'm a mentor and took her out for lunch and it was delightful. So, and now we get to talk about mass murder. So, yes, I mean, this isn't our normal serial murder, (laughs) but when you kill over 900 people, I think it counts. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And today we are talking about Jim Jones and Jonestown. Well, as a native Hoosier, I feel I should somehow apologize for Jim Jones because he's (laughs) also a Hoosier. Um, Jones was also a cult leader beginning in Indiana, moving to California and ending in Guyana. For everything he did during his life, he's remembered for his leadership of the largest mass murder-suicide in American history until 9-11. The phrase drinking the Kool-Aid was spawned from this event as he forced his followers to drink grape flavor aid, which is a knockoff brand, laced with cyanide. About 918 people died and 304 of them were children. Now I'm not going to go into the graphic detail of it because as I was reading what they did to get the children to drink this stuff, I just started crying because, you know, it was infants, it was babies, it oh, was, yeah. you know, and so I was like, okay, I can't go into that too it much. Was so. It was, it was unbelievable. And, and this case kind of interested me for a number of reasons. Um, ever since my dad was brainwashed a few years ago by a con man, it's been fascinating to me to see how easily most people can become brainwashed given the right circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so this mass suicide that happened in Jonestown happened in 1978. And I was eight years old. And I remember how it dominated headlines in Indiana where he was a well-known preacher and supporter of integration. Now, he was a really complicated person, obviously. So first of all, he was a communist. 
And he was a fighter against racism and had one of the few integrated churches in Indiana in the 50s and 60s. In fact, in 1960, Indianapolis Mayor Charles Boswell appointed Jones director of the local Human Rights Commission. And he led many fights that led to desegregation in Indiana, including the Indy Police Force and a couple hospitals. Yes? Were you as surprised as I was to discover how much he was involved with civil rights? And Yes, I was shocked. I, I, yeah, I had no idea. I was shocked because, I mean, you really see in him a person where had he turned his forces to good, he would have really moved the world, you know, yeah. but he didn't. Um, he used, you know, religion as a cudgel and lined his own pockets and then, you know, eventually convinced a whole bunch of people to kill themselves. Yeah. And it's like, but all of the amazing work he did for human rights just like went completely down the drain because that's what happens when you're a mass murderer. True. And, you know, even one of the things that kind of caught my attention is he was hailed as a leader by people from the NAACP, the Urban League, um, Harvey Milk from San Francisco wrote like oh, a letter. Oh, I missed that one. Yeah. And I was just, I was just astonished. And so, as you know, there's another side to him. So he was born on May 18th, 1931, and his childhood was shaped by the Great Depression and World War II. And Indiana during the Great Depression, you may recall, was greatly influenced by the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. It had a big resurgence during the, the Great Depression, which is interesting because it seems to have had the opposite effect on him than intended because he became a staunch integrationalist, which was really controversial in Indiana in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But by all accounts, little Jim Jones was an odd child, obsessed with religion and death. He often held funerals for small animals, including ones he himself had killed. In 1949, when he was 18, he married Marceline Baldwin, a nurse about four years his senior. They moved to Bloomington, Indiana, so Jones could study at IU. Now, that I could see, because it's IU. And as a Purdue gal, everything out of IU is a little suspect. But um, he was there for about two years, and then they moved to Indianapolis, and he went to Butler part-time and eventually graduated in 1961, which you'll notice that's like a 10-year gap because he was going part-time and, you know, starting churches and things like that. So what's interesting, too, is the couple had one natural child in 1959 who they named Stephen Gandhi, but they adopted about six more children. Five were formal. One was seemingly informal, but it's a little questionable exactly how all that went. Um, Agnes was part Native American, and then there were three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne, and then one white child who was the son of two of their cult members. Mm -hmm. um, and they also made the papers as the first white couple to adopt a black child in Indiana. Uh, Jim Jones often referred to them all as a rainbow family. So Jones started his own church when he realized religion could fill his pockets. He launched what he called the People's Temple in 1955. And from the beginning, it attracted people who responded to his liberal politics, integration, and socialist values. Reverend Jones was ordained in 1957 by the Independent Assemblies of God, and then in 1964 by the Disciples of Christ. So these are two fairly mainstream Protestant denominations, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. Now, from the beginning, it kind of had the earmarks of an apocalyptic cult. That switch didn't really flip until 1965 when, after returning from a trip to Brazil, he convinced his Indiana followers to move to California as a way to survive the upcoming nuclear war, which he predicted to happen in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So still now waiting. California, yeah, exactly. Thank God we're still waiting, right? Well, yeah. 
<clears throat> so California is where his cult really gained ground, and he made lots of strong political connections, which also raised the reputation of the People's Temple. At one point, the church likely had about 5,000 members, but they boasted at the time of about 20,000. Now, during this time, Jones is looming larger than life to his followers. He's having sex with lots of them, both men and women. He's invading their life decisions, including money, life choices like who they marry, and constantly keeping their attention on him and on their work. Because, you know, that's how cults work. Right. They remove people from their normal relationships and take them over. And about that time, he also starts a drug habit that a few of, only a few of his followers really knew about. So now we're going to speed forward because there's so many things we could delve into about the oddities of Jim Jones. For example, he raised money in the early days of his church by selling monkeys door to door. <laughs> I have an article on that. I think I'll share on the website. Yeah. It's a picture of him with the monkeys too. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, I when I was living in Missouri, there were a couple of guys I knew there who were like, thought the epitome of having a pet was owning a monkey. And I thought... <laughs> Where did you even get this? But apparently it was quite the thing to do in the 50s to own a monkey. Well, yeah, it all went wrong with him when all the monkeys were dead on arrival, I believe. Oh, I didn't see that one. I believe that's where that plan went <laughs> by the wayside. <laughs> oh, my God. So we're going to kind of gloss over all of the idiosyncrasies and mm -hmm. leap to the summer of 1977 when Jones and several hundred temple members abruptly decided to move to the temple's compound in Guyana after Jones learned an expose was about to be published, which included allegations by former temple members that they were physically, emotionally, and sexually abused. Now, Jones had started building Jonestown, which, by the way, was formally known as the People's Temple Agricultural Project, several years before the, that New West article was published. And the, uh, the Jonestown in Guyana was promoted as a means to create both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from the media scrutiny in San Francisco. Jones purported to establish it as a model community, adding that the temple comprised the purest communists there are. <laughs> I know, right? He did not, however, permit members to leave Jonestown. Although adults could leave to go to nearby towns for various reasons, children were never allowed off the campus. So anyone wanting to escape would have had to leave their children behind. So you can see why people stayed. Right. Jones began to propagate his belief in what he termed translation once they were in Jonestown, where he and his followers would all die together and move to another planet and live blissfully. Oh, so alien type of a yeah philosophy sounds exactly. familiar like a lot of other cults yeah exactly and you know you start seeing the the brainwashing stuff really take hold here because he can he has people trapped in a compound and he can do anything he wants with them so he began to run audio tapes over loudspeakers of him preaching all day long telling his followers that bad men were coming to torture them and their children and they had to be prepared. He started making them practice mass suicide called White Nights. And at least one time, his followers thought they were actually taking poison. And then when nobody died, he kind of laughed and said, ah, you know, why didn't you just test how bra you know, brave you were? Go up, go ahead and go back to bed. Because he literally wake them up in the middle of the night to do these things. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, back in California, the relatives of his followers are going crazy and begging for government intervention. So in November 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan led a fact-finding mission to Jonestown to investigate allegations of human rights abuses. And this is when the shit hit the fan. 
Yeah. So although the inspection itself went off without incident at first, several members of Jonestown slipped a message to Ryan that they wanted to leave. The delegation then left really fast the, that afternoon. Now, the same day they arrive, they're, they're getting out of there because th there was a temple member, Don Sly, who, tried, who attacked Ryan with a knife. Oh. And the attack was thwarted, but Ryan was like, I'm out of here. So Ryan accommodated 15 members who wanted to leave, and Jim Jones let them leave the compound. But while they were boarding the charter planes to leave, members of the People's Temple drove up and opened fire, killing Congressman Ryan and four other people, wounding many of the remaining people, including NBC News staff, congressional aides, and family members of former Temple members. After Ryan's departure from Jonestown toward Port Katuma, so this is happening while they're just, they're on their way to the airport. Marceline Jones, who you may recall, was um, his wife. His wife, sorry. That's Marceline okay. Jones, as you may recall, was his wife, made a broadcast on the public address system stating, everything's all right, go back to your homes, it's all fine. During that time, aides are preparing a large metal tub with grape flavor aid, poisoned with Valium, chloral hydrate, cyanide, and phenergan. About 30 minutes after Marceline Jones's announcement, Jim Jones made his own, calling all members immediately to the pavilion. A 44-minute cassette tape known as the death tape records part of the meeting Jones called inside the pavilion in the early evening of November 18, 1978. So after consuming the poison, according to escaped temple member Odell Rhodes, people were then escorted down a wooden walkway leading outside the pavilion. It's not clear if some initially thought the exercise was just another white night rehearsal. In response to reactions of seeing the poison take effect on others, Jones counseled, die with a degree of dignity, lay down your life with dignity, don't lay down with tears and agony. He also said, I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear, I don't care how many anguish cries, death is a million times preferable to 10 days more of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, if you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, that so just makes me ill. Yeah, it's just, it's so insane. Rhodes described a scene of both hysteria and confusion as parents watched their children die from poison. He also stated that most quietly waited their own turn to die and that many of the assembled temple members walked around like they were in a trance. Now, the crowd was surrounded by armed guards, which was offering members basically you can die by poison or you can die by getting shot to death. Cries and screams of children and adults are easily heard on the tape recording made. As more temple members died, eventually the guards themselves were called in to die by poison. That evening, a transmission was sent to the temple church in nearby Georgetown telling them to commit suicide, and one of the members killed herself and her three children in response. Wow. So there were 309 people who died at, the jo at Jonestown in Guyana, and then there were four more people. And so when you add up people around who committed suicide, it's like 918. Jones was found lying dead next to his chair in the pavilion between two other bodies, his head cushioned by a pillow. His death was caused by a gunshot wound to his right temple that Guyanese chief medical examiner Leslie Mutu stated was consistent with being self-inflicted. Larry Layton, who had fired a gun at several people aboard the planes, was initially found not guilty of attempted murder in a Guyanese court, employing the defense that he was brainwashed. Acquittal wow. in a, I know, right? Acquittal in a Guyanese court didn't free him, though, 
and he was promptly deported back to the U.S. and arrested by the U.S. Marshal Service as soon as he set foot in San Francisco. So he couldn't be tried in the U.S. for the attempted murders of Gosney Bagby, Dale Parks, and the Cessna pilot on Guyanese soil, was instead tried under a federal statute against assassinating members of Congress and uh-huh. other internationally people, uh, protected people. So that was basically Ryan and his staff. Right. He was convicted of conspiracy of aiding and abetting the murder of Ryan and the attempted murder of Dwyer. Paroled in 2002, he is the only person ever to have been held criminally responsible for the events at Jonestown. So Jackie Spire, who was shot five times on the airstrip as Congressman Ryan's aide, survived despite waiting 22 hours for medical help and is currently the U.S. Congresswoman for California's 14th District. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And the, yeah, the compound in Guyana has been left to be reclaimed by the jungle as the locals want nothing to do with it. And that is the synopsis of, <laughs> and, and honestly, we could sit here for literally five hours talking about all of the crazy stuff related to this and, you know, the people who escaped, how they escaped, you know? Yeah, well, I do have something to add. Tell me. I think you'll find interesting. Larry Layton, who you brought up, was married to a young woman by the name of Carolyn Louise Moore. And he and she joined Jim Jones in California. And at some point, Jones convinced Carolyn to divorce Larry. Ah. So he could have her to himself. Mm-hmm. And together they had a child. His name was, he was called Chemo, but his name was Jim John. Mm-hmm. And he was given the last name Prokes because after the baby was born, he convinced Carolyn to go with another guy who worked for him and was part of the leadership of the People's Temple. Um, gosh, what was that name again? Oh, Michael Prokes. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe Michael Prokes did not die at um, Jonestown. He wasn't there. Mm-hmm. But he did die within a few months in Modesto. Mm-hmm. So I just found that a little interesting. That's wild. Well, what's, what shocked me too is, you know, it's been what, 30 some 50 years, is it 50 years now? 42 years. 42 years since this happened. And they've done a number of follow-ups at different anniversary dates. Mm -hmm. And what shocks me are how many people since that happened, the people who survived it who or who weren't involved in Jonestown, but were part of the People's Temple. Right. Like terrible things happened to them, like unrelated, terrible things, you know, and it was just like, what on earth, you know, I mean, and I believe in demons. So I really think there was something freaking demonic going on there. But it was just like, I don't, it was really startling to me. Well, and another fact that I don't know if you know or not, he had three of his children were with him at Jonestown Mm -hmm. and five of his grandchildren, they all died. So he was responsible for the murder of his children and grandchildren. Oh my gosh. Didn't one of his kids survive? Yes, Suzanne did. And she just died in 2006. Because she wasn't there. Right. That's why she lived. But wasn't one of his sons, one of his adopted sons, was at a basketball game or something? So they ended up being able to escape. I'll yeah. look this up, you know, you know just what? so that we know for sure. I know you're right on that. But for some reason, <laughs> I think he died pretty young, though. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm not seeing it right away on... He had, no, he died there. 
Yeah, I believe you're right. And I might have something marked wrong on my tree. So go ahead and look that up and I'll get started. I do okay. have one correction for you, but it's not your fault. Tell me. Because I believe people have written things wrong, but I have seen the following. So Jim Jones was not born on the 18th of May, 1931. He was born on the 13th of May, <gasps> according to his birth certificate, which I oh have seen. Oh my gosh. I know. It's such a huge difference. Well, no, but, I mean, but facts are facts. Right. But I find it funny that that perpetuated oh, a different website. You know what? Mm -hmm. I think that's not, I can't blame that on anyone but me having a typo. Oh, because I'm like, wait a second. I look back at my notes. Oh, yeah, it says May 13th. Yeah. Oh, okay. But thank so, you for saying that. Okay. I appreciate it. Um, his parents were James Thurman Jones and Lynetta Putman. He was their only child. But even though he was the only child to the two of them, he grew up in an area in Indiana where he was surrounded by family because his father came from a very large family and he was surrounded by his uncles and cousins and aunts and all of that. And he often was seen playing with some of his cousins that were closer to his age and such. I do have a picture I will share of him with some of his cousins as a child mm. on the website. So check oh, that fun. out. Jim's father was James Thurman Jones, like I mentioned. He was born on the 21st of October, 1887, likely in Randolph County, Indiana. He was one of 13 children to his father and one of 10 to his mother. I'll explain that more later. For his early life, he helped his father on the farm. Then World War I happened, and in 1916, he enlisted. He enlisted in the U.S. Navy, I believe. It gets very confusing on the records, but he, I found a card on the Rendezvous Report Index where he's listed as a seaman with enlistment on April 1916. I know, I had to say it again because that's how he's listed. It's a seaman. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. Okay. You're so bad. I wanted to say sailor, but I was afraid I would get somebody going, no, that's not what their job was. That's a whole different thing from somebody who's very exacting. <laughs> um, but they had him serving on the USS Pastoris. Now, what I find interesting is that he also filled out a draft registration card in 1917. Hmm. So why would he fill that out? Unless they, there was this feeling that everybody had to fill it out. You just didn't have to serve if you had already served. I don't know. Uh -huh. But he was also listed on the U.S. Army transport list as being with the U.S. Army Company B, 41st Auxiliary Forestry, Forestry Battalion. Say that three times fast. Wow. And it was sailing to New York. So I believe he served until the end of the war or at least the end of 1917, early 1918. After the war ended, he became an auto mechanic and he married Lynetta Putman in 1926. Now let's talk about Lynetta. He was the oldest child of Jesse Putman and Mary Elizabeth Farrell. When her parents got married, Jesse was between 20 and 22 and her mother was somewhere between 14 and 16. Oh my. I don't know her exact birth or I, I'm missing exact dates so I can't tell you how old she was. Lynetta was born in Princeton, Indiana on the 16th of April 1902 and her father Jesse was a farmer while they were there. They moved to Lake City, Arkansas by 1918 where Jesse got a job working as a blacksmith. Sadly, Jesse died a year later in 1919. Lynetta had two siblings. One was Delbert, 
who died at two years old. And the other was another sister, it was a sister, Thelma, who married at least twice, but I don't know anything more about her. Now, Lynetta's first marriage was not to James Thurman Jones. She married around 1919 at the age of 17, a man by the name of Cecil G. Dixon, who was also 19. And they lived with their mother in 1920 census. Cecil worked as a brakeman for the railroad and her mother was working doing sewing. Wow. The marriage didn't last and they divorced. Now I've seen some suggestions that there was another marriage that she had starting in 1923, but I was unable to find the evidence of that. Now I will say this about Lynetta's family. I am stuck on the family. I can't find Jesse any earlier than 1900. I can't find her mother on the census. I know they've got to be there, but I'm stuck. So I don't have any more on this line. What I do know is that Lynetta returned to Indiana from Arkansas. I don't know if her mother returned, if she passed away, or if she stayed in Arkansas. She moves to Indiana. She meets James Thurman. They get married around 1926. She was 24. James was around 38 or 39. Mm. And this That's was his, not like gross at all. No. And this was his first marriage. That's interesting. Yeah, I found that quite interesting. But I think he was just so busy up until through the war, maybe right after the war, he was too busy doing other things and wasn't ready. Who knows? Um, James worked in road construction at the time. Oh, one quick thing I almost forgot to mention um, about Lynetta's family. I know there is information on her family because Jim Jones, one of the things he used to talk about is that he had Native American heritage. Well, somebody decided right after all that came out in the early 80s to go investigate his tree. And he said the Native American heritage came from his mother's side. So they took a look, started digging, and there are like two or three big boxes stored at the Indiana State Archives, I believe. That's where they're at. They're down in Indianapolis, I know that much, filled with information on this family. So I know the, the information exists, but it's not digital. Oh. Darn it. Indiana, get it together. And, and while Indianapolis is only about three hours from me, I just haven't had the chance to go there <laughs> just to dig for this, this one. Well, on his Native American heritage, I came across a couple of articles that mentioned he claimed it, but that mm -hmm. people disproved that he, was, he had any Native American heritage at all. But they didn't give specifics. And it could be that from the tree that this woman dug into, she disproved it, but it's hard to know where that came from. Um, James died in 1951 at the age of 63 from chronic nephritis, which is basically a lot of kidney results in kidney damage and failure. Lynetta was still young, and she worked as a prison guard at the Indiana State Women's Prison starting in 1959 and worked there until the late 60s, early 70s, when she began. And basically, she as soon as he moved to California, she followed him and left wow. her job. Before she worked at the prison, though, she did work in 1943 at a company called the Perfect Circle, which was producing needed war materials. Oh. So basically she was kind of in that Rosie the Riveter class. Mm -hmm. I believe she was probably sewing, which is not quite riveting, but <laughs> <laughs> she was adding to the war effort. And this is with her child at home. So, so back to her following her son to California, it, she was an ardent supporter of Jim Jones and the People's Temple. She believed in her son so much. Now, I know mothers tend to be pretty much cheerleaders, but I like to think that if I was falling into a cult or trying to lead a cult, my mom, who is Miss Common Sense, or Mrs. Common Sense, I should say, would sit there and either tell me I'm 
no, not even either. My mom would tell me I'm crazy and to stop the nonsense. She would not follow me into that. <laughs> I think you're going to have to like take a look at your kids though, because they're, they're clever enough to start their own religion. So yeah, I think they are. Keep an eye out. <laughs> <laughs> I have some smart kiddos. They're almost frightening, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think I would follow them that, that much either. As I've told them, I will love them no matter what, even if they go to prison. I might not like them sometimes, but I'll always love them and always have their back in that way. Um, she also went, is it, is it Guyana or Guyana? I pronounce it Guyana, but I'm not really sure. Okay. So she also went to Guyana and she passed away in December, 1977 there. No one at home knew she died. Nobody knew she died until the events 11 months later. So they were just surprised to learn not only, you know, of the Jonestown massacre and everybody dying, but more shocked that she had died and nobody had bothered to tell them. Wow. There is a memorial for her in Indiana, but her remains are buried in Guyana, or Guyana, whatever. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's so, a crazy family. It is. And that means basically Jim wasn't sending news to anybody on anybody's death. So I can only imagine how many other people possibly died or got ill and nobody knew about it at home. Oh, I'm sure. Well, and at that time when they were in Guyana, he had a really bad drug problem. Mm -hmm. And so he probably just was so disconnected from reality at that point, you know, which I mean, we talk about his followers being disconnected from reality because what if Jim, Jim Jones was doing, but I think between his drug, drug problem, his natural narcissism and you know, just his general personality, I suspect toward the end, he believed the stuff he was preaching. Oh, I think you're probably right. Why kill himself? Because a narcissist right. typically would not kill themselves in that situation. They'd watch everybody else do it, but they would be like, oops, sorry, mm -hmm. didn't work on me. I'm all good. Yeah. But I think he, I think you're right on that. Well, now we're going to go to James Thurman Jones's father, John Henry. And this is also the grandfather of Jim. This family, by the way, is lived in Indiana for a long time, deep roots in Indiana. He was, John was born in Owen County, Indiana, which is southeast of Indianapolis in 1848. He was the third child born to his parents. And as a child, the family moved to Randolph County, which is east northeast of Indianapolis along the Ohio-Indiana border. So basically, they just moved up north. Don't know why, they just did. He got married to a woman by the name of Frances Ellen Helton in June 1871 in Randolph County. And together they had three sons, Clement, John Enos, and Elza Francis. Then Francis died in February 1877, leaving him and the, their three children alone. I found John and his sons in the 1880 census living with his parents, who are now living in Wayne County, Indiana, which is in a county immediately south of Randolph. And at the time he was working as a school teacher. Hmm. I'm going to tell you a little bit about John's children with Francis. They would be the half siblings of James Thurman and the, so I guess, half uncles of Jim Jones. The oldest was Clement Lawrence. He was born in 1872. And not one of these three children stayed in Indiana, which I found fascinating. Really? Because have you been to Indiana? Well, no, I found it fascinating <laughs> because almost a good portion of the rest of the children did. And like I said, there were deep roots in Indiana. So I was kind of surprised how quickly. These three seem to be like, nope, we're not staying close to dad. We're gone. He, he first moved to Jefferson, Ohio 
by 1910. Then by 1920, he had settled in Greenwood, California with his wife. She died in 1927. Then Clement moved to Washington State by 1940 and remained until his death in 1958. Um, so I think that makes him 83 years old when he died. The second son, John Enos, was born two years later in 1874. He settled in Reno, Nevada by 1910. And I mean, they didn't just leave, they left. They went thousands of miles away. I was gonna say, they didn't just go to Ohio. Right, then he made his way to Sacramento where he died at the age of 93 in 1967. The last son of Francis, Elza, was born 1875 and he was also in Reno by 1910 where he worked as a barber until he retired. He even owned his own shop, and he died in Reno in 1959. It's kind of interesting, too, that they didn't settle near each other either. You know, it's not like the three brothers all went to the same place out in California. Right. They just scattered. Well, the, the two younger of that set were next to each other for a time, but yeah, not for a long period of time. That is kind of interesting. So we'll go back a little bit. Like I said, 1877, his wife dies. By 1880, he's living with his father. Around 1882, he marries a woman by the name of Mary Catherine Shanks. He was around 34 years old. She was 19. Ew. There's a, a, a bit of a pattern of older men, younger women in this family. And much older men. Yes. Mm -hmm. They had 10 children together. Ina, Estella, James, Homer Vigil, that's just one guy, Herbert Lester, John Paul, Yes, this means there were two Johns of wow. the children. Sarah Florence, Everett, and Ernest. And by the way, can I tell you how much not fun it is to look for John Paul Jones? <laughs> I, never I can't really, even imagine. <laughs> I never really ever found him. John died in June 1941, outliving his wife by 23 years. And I have wow. his, he had his obituary. And it was very prominent in the paper. And of course, I didn't write the source of this, but I will have it on the website for people to see. But it says, oldest resident is dead at Lynn. John Henry Jones, 93, Lynn's oldest resident, died at his home. Surviving are 10 sons. Three daughters survived. So basically, all of his children were still alive when he passed away. Wow. And so he had 13 children all total. Yes. Wow. So... When I say that Jim Jones had lots of cousins and family near him, he had lots. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So let's talk about James Thurman's siblings. So Jim Jones's um, aunts and uncles. James's oldest sister was Estella Emma Jones, who was born around 1846. Hold on a second. That's wrong because that's not even possible. I don't know why I put 1846, but as soon as I said it, I knew it was wrong. Okay. I have a correction on that one really quick. You could just because, start over. Because, well, no, because I, I mean, I might edit the correction in <laughs> and show that I'm not infallible. But I knew that couldn't be possible because John Henry Jones was born 1848. So how could he have a daughter who was born two years before him? Mm -hmm. No, his older sister was born 1885. Mm, that makes more sense. Yes, a lot more sense. And she had two, of ch two children, one of each. And I found this interesting, 10 years apart. Oh, wow. So who knows, maybe they had fertility issues and it just, you never know. But I, I love this part coming up. So starting in 1929, let me go back for a second. 
She married Fred Earl Moore in 1906, and they had two children. Starting in 1929, both of them worked for the James Mormon Orphans Home. Oh. Fred was the superintendent, and Estella was the matron, and they worked there until 1943. And this Orphans Home was Quaker. Wow. So it's likely the, fam the Moors were Quakers. Fred died in 1967, Estella in 1981. But let me tell you about this orphan's home. So it was established in 1889 at the bequest of James Mormon in his will. James was born in 1795 in North Carolina and settled as a young man in Wayne County, Indiana. He was a Quaker who was very active in his church as well as an abolitionist, which I think was pretty par for the course for Quakers. Mm -hmm. His estate when he died, an unmarried man, so he never married, never had children, he died in September 1888, was valued at $750,000. Oh, wow. Now, and that's according to an article in the Fort Wayne Sentinel on September 26, 1888. In today's dollars, that is worth $20.5 million, very large estate. Of that estate, he bequeathed $45,000, about $1.2 million today to establish an orphan's home. Oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's because one of his parents or both of his parents died when he was young. He wasn't exactly an orphan, but mm -hmm. he wanted to make sure people weren't alone. Kids yeah. weren't alone. It operated until 1961 when it was unable to make the necessary state-mandated upgrades to the facility. While it operated, 637 children resided there in total. Land was sold in 1968 and the building raised. Although I do have a picture, it looks like part of the entry still exists. Oh, wow. As of today, the home still holds assets and distributes small scholarships to Wayne County high school students going to college. Wow. And some of this information came from waymarking.com. And some of it came from you because I asked you to do some quick research on this. And you're probably going, what in the world is she looking for? Just to see if it was still active. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was wondering how this all related, but this makes sense now. <laughs> I mean, and isn't this fascinating that the sense of altruism also seems to have run through this family? Yeah. That, you know, so many of them were doing jobs that were basically of service to others. And then you get the evil child coming up as Jim Jones. Well, it who, gets all twisted in him. Mm -hmm, exactly. It makes me even more curious about the Putman side, but... Who knows? Maybe I'll be able to find something someday and then we can revisit. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah it, there's a lot of that, I think, in this family because I'm not done with his aunts and uncles. Lester Clyde Jones, which was one of James Thurman's younger brothers, was born in 1894. He went to school at Purdue and later Harvard. Oh, I knew there was something to love about him. <laughs> According to the US, his U.S. passport application, by the age of 22, he had retired, and I'm putting that in quotes, from farming. Because that's what it literally said, retired from farming. Wow. And I, I laughed. And Chris goes, well, maybe they used the term differently back then, which is possible. But he retired from farming to pursue a new career, this one with the Standard Oil Company. And the job with the Standard Oil Company would send him halfway around the world. His first passport was issued in October 1916 with plans to travel from Japan then to China, specifically Shanghai. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
he would make many lengthy trips over the next four years to different parts of China and often was only home for a few months at most at a time. Wow. In 1920, on a visit home, he married a woman by the name of Doris Eiler, who was five years his junior. Together, they returned to China soon after they got married. And while they were overseas in China, they had one daughter, Peggy, and it was their only child in 1922 in Tsingtao, Taiwan. Mm. Now, the family did come back to Indiana on occasion and visit about one, once every one or two years. And there would always be a notification in the paper, guess who's home and visiting. That's so cool. I, I'm shocked they were able to make that trip that often because it's not like they could hop on a jet. You know? Right. It was, they were taking the boat, and you can see them on passenger manifests. Wow. There were several articles about this family because some interesting stuff happened while they were there. This first one was in the Journal and Courier on the 31st of July in 1930. Purdue graduate in district held by Chinese Reds. And it goes on to say that Lester Jones, 35 of this city, who was reported to have been among the last Americans to evacuate the communist-held city of Changsha in China, is a Purdue University graduate and has been in the Orient for 12 years. Lester Jones visited here last in 1928. His relatives here have had no word of him for more than six months and were greatly worried. Wow, that... That had to be something to be a part of that. Yeah, and it was the International News Service who brought news that they were okay and the family was able to relax. No, they're okay. Wow. Then in the paper, the Palladium item um, on the 1st of June, 1940, Mrs. Lester Jones. A radiogram received here announced the death of Mrs. Doris Jones, 40 years old in China, following an operation. Hmm. So basically, Lester's wife has died in China. Their daughter, Miss Peggy Jones, entered the Winchester High School last fall and was a member of the 1940 graduating class. Wow. Yeah. So from that, we also learned that Peggy came back to the States to live and finish her high school years so she could go on to college in the U.S. We'll get the college part more in a minute. Then in the Times-Gazette, two years later on the 23rd of March, 1942, Lester Jones of Lynn is reported safe and well in Hankow, China. Since so many folks have been interested in knowing if relatives have heard from Lester Jones, the following letter has been submitted to this office for publication. And it says, Mr. L.C. Jones is in good health in Hankow. This is based on a report received by the State Department from the Swiss government representatives in China. Information reaching us from other sources indicate that Mr. Jones is able to live in his home. Since your brother is in a Japanese-occupied area, all regular channels of communications have been suspended. Whoa. So it's World War II. And as I read that article, I had remembered, oh my gosh, I forgot Japan had occupied part of China. China was involved in the war to some degree. Mm -hmm. Wow. Then a few months later, in the Palladium item, 2 August 1942, Winchester man aboard liner returning from Pacific area. Lester Jones, who has been with Standard Oil Company in China for the past 28 years, is listed as a passenger on the liner Gripsholm carrying 1,400 Americans and other nationals from the Western Pacific area. Mrs. Jones's daughter, Peggy, who was born in China, 
graduated from the Winchester High School two years ago, but now is in school at Long Beach, California, and has gone to New York to meet him. Wow. But I'm glad he got out. Yeah. That had to be terrifying. It is. And this is around the time he stops working for Standard Oil. <laughs> I think I would too. <laughs> because he, he did end up enlisting in the military during World War II right, in the Navy. Wait and a second. How old was he? He would have been in his 40s at this point. Wow. But so, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm just, I'm surprised they allowed him to enlist when he was that age. I think it's because he brought something they needed. Ah, and tell me more. So in the Union City Times-Gazette, on the 18th of January, 1946, there's a headline, Commander Lester Jones goes to Washington. Commander Lester Jones of the Army Navy Petroleum Board has gone to Washington, D.C. after a week's visit in Winchester. Well, there you have it. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he was contributing information on the Petroleum Board. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, they want you. They'll, they'll, and for all I know, they might have recruited him too. Said, mm -hmm. hey, we want you to join. We can use your services for what we need. Oh, yeah. Um, at the t end of his time with the Navy, he ended up settling in Southern California where his daughter lived. Um, now, we got to talk about his daughter, Peggy Jones. I'm very intrigued. And I have a surprise for you, Zelda. <gasps> okay, I'm ready. And I, I have to explain to our listeners when I found this little tidbit that I'm going to share in a minute, I came so close to picking up the phone and calling you or at least texting you. And I started the text actually. And then I said, no, I'm going to leave this as a surprise. I'm very excited. So I'm telling my husband, Chris, and he's like, I don't care. And so I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> okay. So Peggy attended when she was at college, she was actually attending the university of South California. Southern California, USC. And then she married a man, and you'll love this name, by the name of Oak Berger. Oh, I love the name. Mm -hmm. Now, Oak was a police officer in Los Angeles in the 1940s and on, and he moved up through the ranks. 1940s? Yes. In fact, Oak later taught criminology at the Los Angeles State College and was considered a lie detector specialist. And also, he was considered a police psychologist in some articles. Then I found the following article. And it's, I, I'm going to get into a little to the articles, and we'll get to Oak towards the end, but it's fascinating. Uncle Sobs Out Girl Death Story. And it's about this man by the name of, and this is in the Los Angeles Times on the 20th of November, 1952. John Chauncey Lawrence, 37, took the witness stand in his own defense today and broke into tears as he gave his version of how his 16-year-old niece, Catherine Nodal, met her death last August 19th. She died as a result of being hit in the head. Oh, he claimed that she died as a result of being hit in the head accidentally with a jack handle, but he denied beating her with a rock to make it look like a hit-and-run accident and said he did not molest her sexually after death. <laughs> yeah, oh my. We, we could almost cover this one on our podcast. It's, I should put this, I'll put this on the website because it's interesting. Basically, he was claiming that he had a flat tire and he used a bumper jack to raise the car. And the car pitched forward. I jumped back with the jack handle in my hand and I must have swung around and hit her with it in 
the head on accident. Resuming his story, the defendant said the girl's head was bloody and she appeared to be unconscious. He tried to make a tourniquet on her neck with a piece of inner tube. A tourniquet yeah. on her neck? Mm-hmm. And was afraid he would choke her. Well, that's what happens when you put a tourniquet on a neck. You're going to oh choke the person. I know. So he wasn't the brightest bulb in the Christmas tree is what no. I'm gathering. I mean, at the very least, he's a really bad liar. Yeah. He's, Seriously. He I mean, if I was on the jury, I'd be going, oh, I do not buy this story. Mm -hmm. And then he saw headlights of a car approaching. So he continued and he lost his head, dragged her body over toward what he thought was a grain field, but was an embankment. And both he and the girl rolled over it. I, I'm just. Wow. He cried again when he told how he laid the girl's body carefully in the middle of the road. And this is what could become significant here. Holding her hands across her chest. So he was posing her. And this was the position where her body was found. So apparently they needed an expert witness. And they brought on Sergeant Oakberger of the Los Angeles Police Department. Um, and this, he was the state's final witness. And he told how he was unable to link Lawrence with the Black Dahlia murder. Oh. Or any other Los Angeles murders. Wow. He yeah, he testified that Lawrence admitted to having intimate relations with Catherine after she lay dead. Oh. Oh. Yeah. But that Lawrence was not involved with Black Dahlia. Apparently there had been some comparisons to it in the news. So Oak then must have worked on the Black Dahlia case. That's what I assume from that, that he had great knowledge on that case. That is so wild. And that's it why I was dying to tell you, like. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, and I don't know. It, it blows my mind how many intertwinings we see between murders, like Michael Swango and H.H. H. Holmes. Yes. You know, and now we have Jim Jones peripherally related to Black Dahlia murder. I'm like, that's wild. I mean, not that his family committed the murder, but just no. that they were involved in investigating it. I thought, oh, I better clear that up in case somebody like kind of like dozed off in this. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, wow, that's so wild. It's such a small world. It is. It really is. But I mean, the name Oakberger was one of the easiest names to find. But if you Google Oakberger, you'll get a lot of information about different places that sell hamburgers. <laughs> Okay, that's funny. And on that note, we end part one of Jim's Jones, Jonestown. There was so much information to cover. Zelda and I quickly realized we would have to edit down the episode into two parts. And we haven't even gotten to the good stuff. So we hope you join us next time when we finish with Jim Jones in part two next week on October 21st. And we hope you'll join us the following week, October 28th, for our special Halloween episode featuring none other than Charles Manson. And don't forget to visit our website where all our contact information is located at murderousroots.com. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. 
don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at murderousroots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at murderousroots.com.